0: Welcome to PerfWeb Podcast, hosted by Joe Basha. Okay, and welcome to day three of PerfWeb 26. I'm your host, Joe Basha. Uh, we have a heck of a show for you today. We've got a... Uh, faculty who's been with us before, that's gonna be scaping in here in just a few minutes. He's teed up and I'll be introducing him momentarily. And we have our great faculty from, uh, that, that, that seems to be with us a lot, John Ingram coming all the way from Florida. Can you go to the wide shot? John Ingram coming from Florida. Um, there you go. And, of course, you know Tammy Sparacino and Mike Brown. We've all been introduced over the past few days, so I'll I'll uh, I'll just leave the introductions at that, and you can find a lot of the information about them and also our guest faculty, Dr. Hani Samir, who I'll introduce more formally. He's also been with our show, but if you go to our uh, uh, library.perfusioneducation.com or just go to perfusioneducation.com, you can find our... Um, our uh, uh, faculty list there and read their bios there, which is really very good, I think. A good way to do that, get to know us a little bit better. So let me tell you the obligatory things I need to tell you. We need you to like and share us on Facebook, please. Follow us and share us on the Twitter. Subscribe and click the bell icon for notifications on the YouTube and also follow us on our new platform, in LinkedIn. So don't forget our call-in number, which is coming up here, and also join our faculty. In fact, I think we're gonna show that faculty page. I think that comes up next. Yeah. There you go, you see that there, okay. So our discussions today um, are going to be on, um, on rest vent settings, how to rest the lungs on a patient that has ARDS that is on VV ECMO. Um, it's, a, it's a very interesting, timely topic, and something that I, I I think a lot of people, I including myself, really don't don't know the, don't really know. Or we're gonna ask an expert. We're gonna have him lecture on that. Um, and then of course John Ingram is gonna be talking about a very interesting case. I was out visiting him in Orlando and uh, he we were walking through the unit. He had like 18 patients he was managing that day and uh i saw this one which really caught my attention i don't think i've seen that many tubes ever in my life so that i asked him to give a talk the talk is when vv vv ecmo is still not enough that's vv space vv ecmo is still not enough because it was fascinating and 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 that's going to be a very i think uh uh, a very instructive case, because it was interesting as could be. So, let me introduce Dr. Samir if I I can. Can we bring him up? Yeah. Hey, Dr. Samir. How are you? I'm doing great, you look fantastic. As usual. Of course, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> very good. So Dr. Samir, you've met him once before, but for those, he's only been with us one other time, and he gave a talk on tele- telemedicine, one of, his, one of his new passions, but he's an assistant professor of CV, anesthesiology and critical care medicine uh, with Weill Cornell Medical College. He is also double boarded in both anesthesiology and critical care medicine. He has license in five states, He's published multiple papers on mechanical circulatory support and severe shock, ECMO, sepsis, LVAD as a bridge to transplant or to permanent device, and of course his new passion, telemedicine. He is truly an expert in the topic that he is going to be talking about today, and we are all very much looking forward to hearing that. uh, and again, his, his picture and uh, his bio are on our website, so please review that for more detail. But in the interest of Dr. Samir's time, uh, and we appreciate you so very much coming and spending the, uh, the part of the afternoon with us. I know how busy you are, and everyone appreciates it, because this is something that is perfusion, um, is very important for us to learn more about. Uh, I, I think a lot of us think we understand it, but maybe we really don't, so let's see. Yes, Dr. Samir. So, would you like, well, it depends. Do you have anything, do you want to say anything, or would you like to go right into your presentation?
1: I just want to thank you guys for having me. It's, uh, it's my pleasure really to be here. Uh oh, where'd
0: I go? Oh, there you go. Are we good? Yeah. share your screen? Yeah, why are we looking at me? Oh, because he has us on his screen. Oh, he has to put his slides up. That is his screen.
2: Yeah,
0: also have to minimize Skype. Ah, OK. You minimize the scape. He's going to do it. He's got it.
1: Are we good? We need a close we- Skype window.
0: No, that's the slides. No, I see the little one there. Oh, yeah, and then close your and going to close your 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 uh window cuz we see us. There you go.
1: Full screen with slide. Are we okay? Yeah,
3: to go full presentation on the screen. He's going full screen. Mm-hmm. He has to do it.
1: Are we good?
0: We are good.
1: Okay, so, our subject, uh, Joe gave me a very controversial subject. I'm, a, I'm glad I'm a little isolated uh, from you guys. There's a lot of people who come and hit me. i <laughs> after making a few statements, and it, it, there's a lot of slides. we am going to skip some, and besides some talk about my experiences. And so it's like a huge topic we're talking about, with a lot of opinions and a lot of different ideas. Some things, I will give you some recommendations, and those are my opinions and experiences. So, please, if you agree, let me know, it's okay. Uh, I mean, one thing, I have, you know, I'm a big believer in uh, ECMO, so that's the one disclosure I want to make. So, uh, before we start, I want to say that. So when I see lungs like that, I start to get scared. Another disclosure I have to make, I'm a cardiac anesthesiologist and I believe in one thing, either you're breathing or you're not breathing. I have nothing in between. I get confused with anything in between. So either you're breathing, you're good, or you're not breathing. So, obviously it's a little statement i like to start with. You know, it's not good to do just our best, we have to know what to do so we can do our best. It's like a little loop. We're going to talk about guidelines for mechanical ventilations, sedation, which is a big, a huge topic, buzzword, spontaneous breathing trials, use of muscle relaxants and sedation, wasting and atrophy, and mobilizing patients, whether they're ventilated or echo patients. And I believe you can mobilize both. I'm taught by a very smart person that I work with, She's one of the most amazing physical therapists we have, Methodist and she mobilizes echo patients and ventilated patients. We're talking about some guidelines for mechanical ventilation. With the so many papers we can look at. Thoracic society, European society, we can look at some of these guidelines. And this is just a museum as an example. So she patients with ARDS, ARDS get mechanical ventilation using low the virus. And a cap or respiratory pressure. Uh, uh, that's a subject that has been like, in the, since 2000, like a big controversial subject. One thing you have to be careful about. I believe in low tidal volumes, but also you have to be careful We you have a big abdominal operation, pushing on the chest, low tidal volumes, you, know, you to hyperventilation. So you have to use your clinical judgment. I don't really, I'm not a big, this is a controversial statement, I'm not a believer in algorithms. I believe in using your clinical judgment. Using you lose all the bond, you're doing well, you have good gases, you can continue. If you don't have good gases, you're gonna have to change. Capping your pressure depends. You have big belly, big habitats, big belly operation, big triple A trauma with bleeding, you have to worry about these situations. And so is the recommendation. 4 to 80 seeds per kid. And there's algorithms out there. That are available and a lot of hospitals use them. That you plug in the patient's weight uh, and the height will give you the idea the to value. To I mean they're great algorithms again, but they're just an algorithm. You've got to use your judgment. Another recommendation if keep the inspiratory freshness and 30. again, that's an algorithm, but you have to use your judgment. Because sometimes you I got a call the other day, somebody called me, that the algorithm is them. What type of to use, but the patient uh, pH is 7.1. So please, forget about that. Use your judgment. He told me I'm going to get written up. I said, it's okay. Put the order for me, I'll get written up for you. Now, another controversial subject. I told you a lot of controversy today, Joe. Should patients with ARDS get proned? I, mean, I have to tell you, a lot smarter people than me uh, love proning. Proning doesn't improve your uh, morbidity or mortality. Proning improves your oxygenation. Does not improve morbidity or mortality, has been proven. And proning has sometimes bad, disastrous results. And if you want the nursing staff to hit you and come kill you and send a gang after you, <laughs> ask them to prone. Uh, you, you have to secure your lines, secure your tubes. You're prone and you're not secure, bad things are gonna happen. And uh, to fix the bad things, you have to flip the patient very quickly and I'll tell you, I have an aversion to proning. And again, a lot of people love proning. Again, it does improve your oxygenation, but does not improve outcome. So you don't have to worry about that when you're doing proning. And there's very kind of fancy prone beds. And again, it takes a lot of manpower. And you do it, and then you change and then you, you, you stir the patient out. But a couple of times, you have to think of another strategy. And I have to tell you, my bias, and this what I said in the beginning, I think of proning, I think of the big E. And I will call one of my surgeons and say, we need to activate the big E. And you know what I'm talking about.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, the big E, ECMO. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Oh, okay, when you start talking about proning the patient, you just would rather have ECMO.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When I'm thinking of proning somebody, I, I think that, and this is a controversial statement, I think ECMO is safer. Uh, ECMO, unless you're scared of ECMO. And if you're scared of ECMO, you should get an expert to handle it for you. Uh, I really have to tell you, I've been mean, proning, uh, when you see somebody prone with swans, allies, chest tubes, what could happen? What has happened before? I mean, unfortunately, complications are bad. Uh, so they're safe for, not for more than 12 hours per day. Some people like to flip them back and forth uh, six hours. It does work, oxygenation uh, improves. Mm-hmm. Another controversial subject. I'm telling you, Joe is killing you with controversy today. Oscillatory ventilation. Okay, I want you to think about it. Like, we're going to hold you down, and somebody is shaking you inside, and shaking you very vigorously. You know that shaking baby syndrome mm-hmm. that many uh, the kids die from?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'll tell you that. I cannot, I'm not sure how I would tolerate it, being cheeky like that. You have to sedate them and paralyze them. Mm. And i tell you, again, if you get to that point, point please consider ECMO. Mm. Again, this is a controversial st- statement I'm making, and, and this is just my own biases. So I'm not really big into uh, hyper And unless it's pediatrics, it does not work really. Then the high, the high PEEP, I am a big believer in high PEEP. Before going, instead of going up, up and up higher too, I will go up on the PEEP, maximize it, use by level ventilation. When they get it used by level ventilation, you are going to have to sedate and paralyze most of the time. You're stretching the alveoli as much as they can to get the best oxygenation possible. And if you're used by level and high PEEP, you can going to have to, uh, uh, I mean, worry about uh, pneumothorax, things like that. And you have to load the patient very well. So these uh, patients are on bilevel, they need a good preload, otherwise the pressure will tank, and you can keep going up on the pressures. Mm-hmm. So those lungs are a little spongy anyway, and now you're loaded up with volume. So, but I, I'm a big believer in bi-level. For me, it's more ventilation, bilevel, uh, sedation process, this is my little algorithm, power by This is my quick, dirty algorithm. Now, recruit and maneuvers. Again, what I did by a fellowship NYU, NYU was big into recruiting mm-hmm. maneuvers. And I, I tell you, they opened their ticletic lungs, and I would try them for short periods, and there's some mechanical ventilators that will do them for you. And I do think they work. You have to do it sedated and paralyzed. Be, be gentle. Remember, I'm an I have to be gentle. So sedida allies for that for the recruitment maneuvers. They do work for a short period. Now here's the question of the day. Should uh patient with ARDS get ECMO? And my answer is you need to choose your patient. And the 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 my statement of the day would be if you have an exit strategy you need to put the patient on ACMO, do not be scared. BV, VA, it depends on the situation. And you need to have an expert team that can take care of the situation. Expert surgeons, expert formulologists, and expert perfusionists that can handle that. attendings. So you can take care of that wherever you are, if the hospital can support it, or take care of transferring the patient out. But I don't think you should, if you think about the ACMO, do it. There's no reason to delay putting the patient on ACMO. Delaying putting patient on ECMO, I mean, I think it's just you're wasting time. Mm -hmm. Why are ECMO outcomes very bad sometimes? Because we wait and wait and wait, and then we're putting an ECMO in a dead body. That actually does not work. So if you think about ECMO, do it from the beginning. What the best thing for the patient is, patient habitus and the situation. If you're on process, you're not on process. So, BV versus VA ECMO. Mm -hmm. See, that, and I just told you, and I, I do not believe with the recommendations. So, you know, I'll tell you, we need to use your clinical judgment. I am very quick, I work with amazing people, and I'm very quick to pull the ECMO trigger. And like Joe said, I do telemedicine, and I cover a hospital, very small hospital, that does not have an ECMO service. But I have a available for me. Uh, reach the house, a pen where we can fly the patients there and get them to an service. So I don't hesitate. So we look at some quick summary of the recommendations. The mechanical ventilation, RDS, 4 to 8 mL per kilo. chrome positioning I'm not a big believer. And uh, oscillatory ventilation, again, I'm not a believer. So I either low on volumes, so they paralyzed, doesn't work, I would put the fish on aqua. And I'm sure those statements are a little controversial in the world. I mean, this is my only practice. Now, sedation guidelines. That's a whole huge topic. So I believe you're either sedated or you're not sedated. There's nothing in between. If the fish are sedated in bed, and then half in the bed, half out of the bed, we've all seen that. That's, that's a, not a good sedation level. And I know we have sedation scales, RAS, minus one, minus two. You really, really have to, to use your judgment. And you'll you know if the patient is uh, sedated or not. If you need sedation and paralysis, you need to go all the way. Make sure the patient is asleep. Use a BIS monitor to, uh, to I mean, a BIS is, is like a circuit for awake, being awake or not. So if you have a good BIS 30s, 40s, you're good, you can paralyze. I mean, if you're not sedating patients with their mechanical ventilation, that's, that's me. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be really the about, it also depends on the patients. This Pro-Fold, there's Prestatex. There's some patients, a lot of they can interact on the vent. And I'll tell you from personal experience, I'm not going to shy sharing that. I was intubated for a reason, and I was able to communicate uh, while being on the vent because I was on Prestatex, and I had no problem with that. I, it, doesn't, it doesn't bother me that I knew I was being ventilated. I was able to communicate with the nurses with the physicians. Actually, I like that, because I was able to kind of manage my own care. And being the controlling person that I am, that made me very happy. go about recommendations now, light sedation versus deep sedation. Again, if you're going to be willing to extubate, I light sedation is good. You're now on by level and your maximum setting is deep sedations. And we look at that. Now we're looking at the recommendations and the strength of the recommendation. That is conditional, low, high. I'll let you guys use your judgment. When we do slides, we're gonna go in a little quicker. Again, should you use ProFold, the Benzos? I'm uh, against Benzos. I, I hate Benzos. I, again, Benzos, I feel, are like good for seizures. They're not good for sedation. They're good for doing, like, short-acting benzos, like Versa, It's good for a small procedure. They're not good for sedation. They have metabolites that hang around forever and ever and ever. And I would go with either propofol or Brezolex. Propofol is a great drug. i got a bad drug for a while about lactic acidosis, but you know, if you're using high doses for long periods of time. It doesn't really happen other than that. So Profol you cannot communicate with the patient, the patient will be out, out. Uh, uh, there's no metabolites, so you want to stop it. In a few minutes, you can wake up the patient. Mm-hmm. Now, next prasidex. I mean, was, was helps a lot with early extubation. Patients can communicate, they can tolerate the tube, but they still can breathe on Presidex. That's one good thing about Presidex. A lot of patients we did in the ICU on Presidex without an ET tube because you can breathe on Preselex and you can communicate and relax. So I'm a big Presidex fan. Sometimes you can convert patients from propofol to Preselex when they're ready for I don't want people to keep people on Preselex for hours and hours and, day and days. But if you're ready to be extubated, you can convert propofol to Preselex and extubate. And you have to choose your judgment. There's no really, I don't believe in an algorithm, I believe use your judgment and your clinical experience. And here's the different ideas and the recommendations and the strength of the evidence, low, high. Again, the levels of sedation are important. You don't want to be, I mean, I don't believe it's too deep sedated. If you need it, you need it. And I suggest you only use the vis monitor if you're ever going to be paralyzed. We're going to talk about that, about uh, paralysis and, and what we should do for us, so. Some slides we're going to go through quickly right now because I want to move to spontaneous breathing trials. I think they're extremely important. I think every patient I see you who is getting close to being excavated needs a well, this breathing really trial. But if you're on the you on some level ventilation, you should not be touched. Like my wife would make fun of me, i say, Leave them alone, don't touch, no touch possible. So I, if you are on bilevel level ventilation and paralysis, I would not touch the patient. If now you're getting close, we need to wake you up, see your mental status, see if you can breathe or not. Spontaneous breathing trials have been associated with early excavation. So anybody who's close to being excavated in the ICU, ICU, like any cardiac surgery ICU, which is doing well, in the morning you should have spontaneous breathing trials on everyone. Now, there's so many different ways to, to win from mechanical ventilation. I'm going to interject that. So it's spontaneous breathing trial. And now, I'm a strong advocate, again, if you can breathe or you cannot breathe. If, I, if you can breathe, I'm going to extubate you. If you cannot breathe, I'm going to sedate you again. I'm not a big fan of extubate, put you on non-invasive. And I know a lot of homologists are going to be very mad at me right now saying that. So I'm either, again, that's an anesthesia's creed. You either can breathe or you cannot breathe. You don't know anything in the middle. So why do we why do we why wake up everybody in the morning and we see if they can breathe? Because people say, oh, we don't we're we're not sure the gas is not agreed. Let them try to breathe and you know sometimes patients will surprise you, if you do very well, get parameters and activate. I mean, I I will get a gas in the morning, but parameters and debate is the basic. If you can do the effort, you can breathe, you're good. I would not keep repeating the gases because again, I will only activate patients based on their effort. The gas has a factor, but the effort is the most important thing for me. If they're struggling, I don't let anybody struggle. You know, the nurses will say in the morning, look good, Dr. Sabine is crazy. We're not looking good, i breathing relaxed, it's gonna end So just a little statement, I like the statement a lot, which is capacity to breathe cannot breathe, you should not, you should not get an expert breathing trial. And again, if you try to exhibit everybody, obviously you're going to have reduced in the later days, reduced pneumonia, ICU stays, all these good things. But please, do not expect anybody prematurely. That has a very bad cost. And I'm not talking about the money cost. I'm talking about the cost of patients who get extimated and go to the floor crash, Get a bit emergently, these intuitions are not good. Now confusion, the ICU also prevents patients from being extubated early. So you have to, like again, if they're agitated, I I would put them on press and have to relax them and communicate with the patients. Patients do like a lot when you communicate with them. And they can write a note to them no, and it does what I was writing notes to my physician, just extubate me. You need to reintubate me Call anesthesia, they'll take care of me. So I think patients want to participate in their own care. Now, uh, here's an important uh, situation is monitoring delirium. I'm going to talk a little about it here. Uh, we're talking about it in the end, in early mobilization. So, how do you monitor delirium? You have to watch these patients. I don't believe in restraining anybody. First, it's against the state to restrain anybody. And any of us who are restrained will be very combative. You wake it out, and you're agitating the patient more. So, I believe in watching them, either get somebody, uh, a human being, are there watching them or Can ICU. see ICU, basically, there's a centralized monitoring for those, uh, for those patients. Watch them, see if they're okay or not. And if you get those species walking early, you can do very well for them. Uh, staying in bed is not good for anyone. Think about any of us on the weekend, if it's raining, we're in bed for the whole weekend. By Monday, we're stiff, we cannot get up. It's very bad, and we're not critically ill. You imagine critically ill, nutritionally impaired, and you, you cannot uh, get up, and you're staying in bed, and you are be restrained. Actually, to be honest, and I'm going to go as far as I think that's being mean. And I, a lot of people don't agree with me about the restraining. I do not like restraining any of my patients at all. I'd rather put the one to one or put a user camera and see you. Again, obviously again spontaneous tries the early exhibition, there's no question about it. And also you get neuro evaluation of those patients. Because, we be honest, with extending somebody to CAT scan, it's not an easy task. So, I would wake up the patients, and that's what you do every morning. You wake up the patients, see how they're doing. That's a quick, dirty CAT scan. They cannot wake up the patient and use an emergency team. Uh, again, validating uh, the situations using uh, can I use is very important. can I use have been used with great, I'm a big, heavy, Telemonitoring person in every avenue. We're telemedicine for ICU, telemedicine for ECMO. I mean, I think there's no limits to telemedicine. I think the only limitation of telemedicine is us. When we say, oh, it cannot be used. Telemedicine can be used for everything all. Hmm. Now, protocols. I remember I said I was against protocols in the beginning. Protocols for early extubations are good. I will talk to my my restorative therapist, they know what I like. I just tell them, go ahead, go around on the patients, tell them who can extubate or not. They use the protocol, they'll come and tell me the the winning parameters, and say, extubate or not. So this this is important. Empower your therapist. I believe the entire people do their thing. I don't have to go around and extubate everyone. The therapist will come and tell me, oh, this is the numbers, and it looks good, there's not much secretion, extubate. They I tell me mean, these are the numbers, but the secretions are massive secretions. Say, so I will go check the patient, leave the patient alone. Again, you really have to use the power of the team that you work with. And some of our reps are amazing. And they know the patients, they've been sanctioning them, they've been talking to them, I mean, every day, so sometimes they know the patients more than we do. Let's skip some of these slides. Again, if you uh, have an open chest, you have sepsis, I don't think it's a good idea to try to give you a spontaneous breathing trial. Now, things that you should uh, watch for when doing a spontaneous breathing trial, your heart rate becomes too bradycardic or too tachycardic, too hypertensive, arrhythmias, you're struggling, uh, you're foaming out the tube, I mean, sweating, clammy, you can have an MI. it's not worth it. I always say to put the patient back on uh, sedation, put them back on the vent. And sometimes just increasing the pressure support on the vent, they say, oh, like, all of a sudden take a big breath, and they relax. Again, I, I don't want to start to breathe. If I wake up in the middle of the night, and my nose is clogged, I freak out. So I can imagine those patients have a straw in their mouth. They're trying to breathe, how they feel. And again, as I told you, I was in a situation where I knew how to feel, it feels, to uh, be ventilated. And Joe, you can imagine how much I was acting up. I was one of those patients putting on the tube, putting on the tubing, making sure the alarm goes off, so, so because I was just being a very bad patient. So, you know, you have to put yourself in that situation. Here's the trials, that are for, for this being you know, trials. This here's multiple studies and I can tell you all the end result is, it's much better. There's no question about it. Now, some people use different techniques. Depends how old you are. TPs must be as old as me. And I do believe in TPs. If you can breathe on TPs with gas, I think I'll extubate you. I came from NYU, there was a cough meter. There was a cough meter, how hard you can cough. Not a nip, it's just the arms. Cough as hard as you can. And our attendants used to be old Russian Tell them if you can hear a good rattle in the tube, the fish is coughing very well. Go ahead and excavate it. I have to tell you, every time we did that, we had no problem whatsoever. So I believe whatever works for you, whatever your experience is. Why is the place they fail? agitation and anxiety, patients who are mental status. patients who get blue, start sweaty and clammy, patients breathing too high. And I'm going to go through some of these uh, slides a little quicker. And here's a lot of favorite statement. Yeah, those patients who they couldn't, spontaneous breathing trial did not work. Exhibition to a BiPAP, CPAP, whatever you want to do, did not work. And I'll tell you, I'm, I don't like that. Uh, we exhibited to CPAP, see what's going to happen. Honestly, I'm not so smart, but well, I know, I can predict what's going to happen. Fish is going to tire out, and we're going to have to reintubate them. Now, again, I'm, I'm an early intubator. That's not a clinical recommendation. This is a mere recommendation. So, here's the difference for various breathing trials and why they failed, what kind of patients. And the question is, how many times are you going to try to get your patients for this breathing trial? Again, trials of excavation, we you do something else. That's a total other, whole other story. <clears throat> what impairs breathing, COPD? Post-op patients are different. You have a big belly operation. It's very different than when you're having a chest operation. So, that, you know, pulmonary step, pre existing pulmonary problems. When did they stop smoking? You guys know all that. Muscle relaxants on sedation mobility. Muscle relaxants, a lot of people hate them. I love them. Why? Because we, you are in dire need when you need them. You, you need them, they, they, they save your life and the patient's life. Sedate and paralyze. Make sure you did it appropriately first. You don't want to be paralyzed in a week. So I'll tell you, I have, I, a lot of people hate us relaxers. I love them because when you need them, you really do need them. And I'll tell you, you know, uh, you have to look at these guidelines for sedation and paralysis. I, if, you need, if you need to be paralyzed, you're know, you a bad guy. None of us will debate why you need to be paralyzed. And if you use them, please use them strongly. One thing I have to mention: there's nobody drops the blood pressure from muscle relaxing, sedation paralysis is good for you. Actually, once you paralyze, your pressure goes up. With the, because why your, uh, your your blood retainer is good, your preload is good. There's no uh, like peep. There's a concept I believe it's called autopeep. When you rather that other people when you are holding your breath, you are. Holding your heart volume in, and you're not refusing. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our surgeons will say, Don't let my patient do that. Paralyze them, please. Mm-hmm. And once you give one shot of paralysis, the pressure comes up. Mm-hmm. I got not the good recommendations, but a little more academic than what I'd like to be, but once you to see these things. The guidelines and they come from patients reporting. Sleep is very important at ICU, I'll tell you. Those patients, if they don't sleep for a while, their life, their life is not normal anymore. They get confused, and night becomes day, day becomes night. They just don't know what to do, and they get agitated, agitated. You try to sedate them, and now you want to restrain them, and you go into a cycle that you don't want to go into. And you're going to be keeping your ICU because the floor cannot handle them. We all have heard these things. So the best thing is, get the patient up, walking, unsedated, and, and extubated. And I'll tell you what, in the, there was a lot of controversy on walking patients are ventilated. The controversy is like, how many patients are required to, to be admitted in emergency? And we had like practice, drills. Are we gonna have to log, roll them on the floor, and admit them on the floor? I will tell you, how many fishes do you think that we walked around with the tube need to be admitted in emergency because it's self-examated? The number is zero because those fish are being watched by five, six people. Now that the fishes are laying down in bed, not being watched by anybody, thrashing around and not sleeping appropriately, half in the bed, half out of the bed, and you all have seen that. And they self extivate all the time, and they have very bad outcomes. So really, I mean, the whole thing of any mobilization with patients intubated, I've seen it myself. It does work. You know, I'm going to jump into walking people with the Avalon canyons. Not everybody's canyons will fall out. Has that happened? In Some places it has happened. And that's why the, even Avalon has a little bandana now to so the head of the patient so you can hold the Avalon in. You have to be very careful what you're doing. But the lack of your experience, should not be the patient's problem. do I make your problem the patient's problem. Well, the patients come to the hospital to get well and get better, get out. Your lack of experience or your fear should not be the patient's issues. George, I'm taking too much time. Please let me know.
0: Um, no, sir. You're not taking too much time. Let's say uh, uh, about probably five, five to ten more minutes before we do some discussion.
1: It's just. Just stop yourself because there's a lot of things I want to show and some statements. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so mobilization, early survival is a huge thing, life quality, and things have been studied. You go home after being ventilated, and is you are you mentally intact? And that's related to you. because You get out of a. It's all related to mobilization, getting out of bed, and you are able to return to work. It's not about just extubating the patient, get them out and walking. What happens to their life later? These things have been studied. Muscle weakness, I'll tell you. I was shocked when I got out of bed for the first time to see the difference between my legs. One leg was like almost, I cannot recognize it. So thin and like, like and there's no muscle mass. And one is normal. I was like, this is my leg? How could this be my leg? And I was psychologically traumatized by that. And that made me learn walk, walk early, walk early. And I'll tell you, I mean, again, I was not the doctors who came up with that idea. Those our amazing physical therapists. They taught us that, and we were there for them. We backed them up and if anything happens, we'll be there to care of the patients. And once you empower people, and people's there for them, they will do amazing things. Because once a patient leaves the hospital, you wanna uh, make sure they went back to work back to their life. You took care of them went back to their normal life. The one that was sent to attack. When I go back to my normal life, right now I enjoy going to the pool because somebody was able to get me out of bed early. I credit them with that. Now, here's a people question, but it interventions. What kind of patients they were? Critically ill patients? Uh, <clears throat> What's the intervention? Uh, rehab mobilization? And uh, what kind of care did they get? What was the outcome? So this PICO is a bigger uh, word now. Any intervention, I want to see what the PICO is. So they, I looked at those patients talking about. They got extubated early, and they walked around, and were able to go all back to their work, back to their life, back to their social life, what kind of impact we had on them. And it was an amazing impact. And now there's different ways to measure, to measure muscle strength. Now, elective heart surgery, right now I'm going to focus on heart or heart surgery and transplant. You can get the patient pre-op evaluated. And this is how many feet they can walk. Six-minute walk. All of us have heard the buzzword, six-minute walk. Look, okay, they were a 1,000 feet or no. This is actually a kidney study that's an amazing study. It tells you. If you cannot walk the pinny feet, that the graft is not going to survive, not the patient will not survive. The transplanted kidney will not survive, which was amazing to me. I could not understand it. But I know the study it was validated. So you really need to evaluate the patient's pre-op, see what the strength is pre-op. Then the going to happen. Obviously, somebody was in a wheelchair pre-op, you're not gonna, they're not going to fly away post-op. You have to look what they have pre-op, and that's what you gonna have to work with post-op. And things are like outcomes that were looked at, you know, muscle strength, at the ICU discharge, how long they were related what their quality of life when they went home, did they die in the hospital, their physical function when they went home. They were they able to go to the store like they used to go to the store? They were they able to walk, walk around the yard? Please say, I want to go get my mail. I want to walk around and go to the pool. They were they able to watch TV and engage in critical shows? <coughs> and, uh, you awesome. know, does the family feel they different, or they're like they tell you all oh, done? No. Like the expression we used to use in the past, a pump head. That expression is still being used. Is this a pump where a head or not? This this was the president CEO. Was he able to go back be a CEO, made the same amount of money? Or did he have to go back on disability? Things that all have been looked at. So I want you to know everything we do in the hospital has an impact later in life, and you really have to be all cognizant of that. So the people, uh, questions, looked at the ICU population, the timing of uh, the rehab and mobilization, and waiting in the end to mobilize patients is not a good idea. It has to happen while the patient is in the ICU. Again, you have to have the staffing and the innovation in your staff to do that. It's not something easy to convince people with. I'm gonna show you some numbers, quickly. There's another one, Joe, to cut me off. What he
4: say? He doesn't want Joe to cut him off.
1: Ah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, I was talking about the decision mobilization should be feasible, acceptable to all stakeholders. Means the patient, to the doctor, nurses, physical therapists, and you have to back up your staff and tell them you're going to be there for them. And because you don't want a, an idea like that, you don't want it to fail. You need to be innovative. And I'm going to apply this to mechanical ventilation and ECMO, same thing. And obviously, I'm talking about BV ECMO. Mm-hmm. We've all seen pictures of BV ECMO patients walking around extubated and interacting with their family. I was in France, actually, in a conference, and. I was not sure if I was this patient, I would do it. This patient was on BV ECMO, got married on BV ECMO. And I mean, if we were the patient, we would do that or not, that's a whole other issue. But the staff was so supportive. The hospital team took the patient down to the hospital chapel and had the wedding, it was on BV ECMO.
0: Hey, Dr. Samir, about about two minutes,
1: sir. Okay, sir, I will go quicker now.
2: <laughs>
1: even, more, even more quicker. In the, <laughs> so, indications for initiation of uh, ambulation that you're ready to get up and walk around, that's a good indication. The is ready to get up. One of our surgeons is surgeons amazing, believes in negative reinforcement. I agree with it. people think it's mean. We'll tell the patient, you need to get up and walk around. If you don't get up and walk around, you're going to have pneumonia and die. Guess what? The fishes jump up and get up. <laughs> you know, when to stop? The fish cannot. I only stop walking around. The fish cannot do it anymore. You stop breathing, try stop walking around. The fish cannot do it. Don't force the fish. Those fish are still fragile. So... I chose this slide for one reason. Not for anything I said, nothing can be substituted for clinical judgment. Algorithms, and anything else, do not substitute anything for clinical judgment. Okay, well, Joe, you want me to stop here?
0: Um, I think so. I think we have some good questions, and in deference, my other, our other faculty uh, 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 from, uh, from Florida has a flight out. Um, at John Ingram, he has a flight out uh, at a certain time, so I have to try to stay on time. So, if no it's possible, could we go ahead and open it up to some questions at this point, in deference to him and also your time, because I know you had said you were on a tight schedule too.
1: Yeah. I have to run. A, I have a, like a. You're just yeah. you're I just trying to, head to, head to make actually,
0: yeah. you're just trying to make me the bad guy, but I'm used to that. <laughs>
1: Absolutely you are you are the bad guy. I'm the angel that has all the data. You are taking it away from me. It's
0: okay Very good. Very good. So if we could go ahead and stop sharing your screen And then we can open it up to some uh, panel discussion. That would be fantastic Mike you're on the uh, on the far, right?
1: Stop on sharing.
0: So there you go. You're good. So you're on the far right. So you get start
5: Okay I just I totally agree with the, the statement about um, of um, early ambulatory status of these patients. We see that uh, all the time, and it seems like uh, people are very hesitant to do that based upon their level of of sedation they may be having at, at that particular time. Uh, do you ever go so far as just to have the patients uh, dangle at the side of the bed? It used to be an old thing that we used to do, but any type of movement in and around the bed, uh, short of uh, ambulatory status, do you find that also as a benefit to the patients?
1: Absolutely. I would do my Any movement would prevent skin breakdown. Remember, skin breakdown is a big issue. I didn't talk about that. It's a huge issue. And what do patients die from? The cubes and pneumonia. If you see the bad the cube, it's a bad, you know, the nutrition status impaired is a big problem. So, I will tell you, get them up, sitting up and dangling is always a first start. And you know the difference to sedation? I would always lighten the sedation. I don't want to take it off totally. No, not that, you know, Presidex, I'm branded now. So, I'm not trying to push Presidex. I will set them up on a low level of Presidex and to take the edge off so they can walk. Already in the tube, they are not coughing. And just keep an eye on the patients. And let the patient tell you and uh, communicate, we're going to walk now. And what will happen is our physical therapist will walk, or the physical therapy assistant with a chair behind. The patient gets tired, sits down. And that is our safety mechanism. And they have like a little walker where they hang the chest tubes on. And that's, uh, that's amazing, the patient holds on to them, and then we gets tired, just sits down. And usually, anybody who's walking with a re-ventilated FI to 100%, know the maximum they want So they sit down and rest. Mm. But I have to tell you, the walking Avalon patients, I see it all the time, and they do very well. Mm. I wish I had a video from France. This guy's dancing, and he's waiting with Avalon. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's that's impressive. That's
1: um, so uh, Dr. Dr. Samir, if I may, uh, can you s- click stop sharing your screen so we can bring you up as your picture?
0: Yeah. Am I good?
4: No, no, no. 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 There is a stop sharing.
0: There you go. Thank you. There you go, now we can see you. Hey, how you doing, Dr. Samir? You're back.
1: I'm here. Very Mm -hmm.
0: good. So, uh, very good, very good. So, you know, uh, I have a question about that too, but I want to wait for mine. So, John, I think you're up next.
3: Yeah, Dr. Samir, uh, very nice presentation, thank you. Um, I I can't believe what you were saying about what you saw in France, because we just had about four weeks ago, an ECMO patient, VV, got married, went down to the wedding chapel, on VVX mode, did the exact thing that you were talking about. And one of the things that we've done almost exclusively now is gone to left subclavian insertion for the Avalon cannula. We've almost gone almost entirely away from the from the right IJ because they can move their head; they don't have to have the halo have uh, tube strapped to their side of their head. They can move; they can move their arm. Uh, mm. Sometimes you have to be a little careful of the left arm, depending on where the insertion went actually in. Have you been experimenting with that at all?
1: No, uh, not at all. But I'll tell you, I can see the same concept like the Impala 5 We can put it uh, there and you have to just be careful with it. But uh, that's an amazing concept. And if you could send me a picture of that, would be great.
3: We do almost all left subclavian <laughs> Avalon insertions now because mobilization is tremendous. The comfort of the patient is greatly improved. And um, they can move their head. They can turn their neck. Um, they don't have to have a halo. So it's, it's been real, really uh, taken well at our hospital.
1: Hmm. Yeah, really amazing. Have you had, now I'm going to have to ask the bad question. Have you had any complications?
3: We haven't seen any with the left subclavian. We've had no, no complications that I'm aware of.
1: Like going through and through or like too far?
3: I haven't seen it yet. Uh, we've probably done uh, 20 or 30, and I, I don't believe I've seen a, a problem with it yet. So, um, uh,
1: you're I talking about really that perforation? Clavian because that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Would like to show it to some of our surgeons. That's really amazing. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I'll be talking a little bit about that.
1: I'll tell you, I believe in early mobility like you have no idea. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, had, When I had my, my situation, the nurses and the doctors have to hold me down from getting out of bed. I want to get out, get my coffee, and move along with my life.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: If your mm-hmm. priest is able to do that, get them along. You know, I would tell you, go ahead.
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: No, You know, they tell, you, they tell me how far can a walk. Lucky for us, I have one definition in the where, where I work. Okay. Joe knows where I work.
4: You know where he works. So. Yes,
0: oh, I know where you work. <laughs> yes, I know where you work. I know where you work. We're not talking about that today, though.
1: Okay. <laughs> so I think they can go as far as McDonald's.
4: Really? He's saying yeah. that the length of time that they can work, you know the layout, that they can walk as far as McDonald's. Yes.
0: At Methodist. Patients.
4: Yes. When they're on the
0: for mobilization. Yes. And I think that depends. Yes. I think you have your question. So you want to follow up? Why don't you go ahead and you can follow up.
4: Um, Okay. So I actually am going to get away from the mobilization. I think that's fascinating, but I wanted to get a clarification of something. uh, Just a a couple statements that you said, I believe if I heard you correctly, you said um, I guess when determining what type of ECMO support uh, to put on, that you're saying, uh, just kind of an easy thing to remember, if no pressers, then VV, if on pressers, VA, did you say that? Absolutely. Huh. That really simplifies it a lot, if just thinking about it like that. Yes, because, it does. Because I, I know, um, especially when you're at facilities that don't do ECMO a lot, they're a little mm-hmm. bit unsure, they're not really sure, should we just go ahead and do mm-hmm. VA just because we have it as kind of a backup, and I think that simplifies it greatly.
1: Yeah, okay, and- I agree for yourself. You are on pressors, need support the heart VA. Yeah. Le- oxygenation, VB. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, if the, now, if the, if the, if the uh, uh, cardiac dysfunction is secondary to hypoxemia, mm. and you're on pressors, and you think that resolving the hypoxemia will solve the uh, the uh, cardiac dysfunction, would you still consider the v- VA or would you just do VV?
1: I'll tell you, Joe, I'm a big believer in time of the essence. I mean, I would go with max and scale down as needed.
0: Mm-hmm, okay, so you would go VA and, and, then, then, switch, and then switch if needed.
1: Yeah. yeah, you know, wire in the vein, you know, wire in the artery and help our surgeons to get that going, you know, and then skip down if needed.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Did you have another follow-up?
4: Oh no, that's good. Thank okay. you. Okay,
0: so Dr. Samir, a couple of quick questions. Um, one is uh, uh, on the um, vent settings. What on your patients with VV that have that are septic with ARDS? They're not walking around. That's right. not the patient that's walking around. It's the patient that's in there for a chronic condition, usually waiting for a lung transplant or something like that. So I do think we need to sort of explain that from my perspective. If they're septic and really sick and have ARDS and are on ECMO, what is the lowest arterial saturation you're comfortable tolerating in a VV situation before you were to make another intervention if you have minimal vent settings and what does minimal vent settings actually mean to you
1: so i'll tell you now that's a good controversial question thank you boss okay so i'll tell you i believe my i'm not comfortable anything lower than the mid 80s saturation
0: mid 80s mid 80s arterial
1: i'm not anything lower than mid 80s okay and i'll tell you my memory i believe in atlexis if you let like, a lung total collapse, you become really atlektatic and you have problems. Okay. So you don't want to go to four to six per kilo, but maybe, maybe I would say three to six with, uh, with ARDS, I mean, on yeah, echo. Uh, I mean, I don't want the slung to get atlektatic. But there's a big difference between that and a patient waiting for lung
0: transplant.
1: If mm-hmm. you yeah, we- lung transplant, and you really do give up on those lungs, I would
3: not, I'm not going to worry about the lungs at all. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Dr. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Amir, uh, what, what are your PEEP settings on VV ECMO if you're trying to rest the lungs? Okay, if you are on
1: like a regular septic patient, mm-hmm. you know I w- you need to have a PEEP of 15. 15? I, I have a very different high PEEP. So right. low tidal volume, high PEEP? High PEEP.
3: Even on VV ECMO, you, you'll use a high PEEP with low tidal volumes.
1: And if, if, if this is, uh, I mean, such a situation, not long transplant, you know. Right. lung transplant is not going to matter, right? Those long are going to the yeah. garbage.
3: But what about just regular ARDS that's not septic?
1: Regular ARDS, again, I, I really am high IP person. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You it, mm-hmm,
3: You
2: get
1: every bank for your bug, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. You, see, I mean, you don't want to pop the lung, but I, I rarely go above uh, Fifteen. Some people go twenty, 25. I'm not an advocate of that. You have to load the patient very well. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, your venous return is going to be an issue.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm.
1: Lung patients. Lung patients, they sponge the fluid. I don't like loading lung patients.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, let me, uh, so, so, seeing that we're talking about fluid as well, because you want to keep their fluid <clears> balance normal, I'm going to ask you a question that maybe is a little bit off topic, but if the group doesn't mind, it'll just be my last question. Um, Is uh, how how do you feel about patients who are septic, who uh, are in ARDS, or maybe not septic in ARDS, just they're in ARDS for some reason, Um, and uh, they have you know okay renal function at the time, they're making some urine, it's not great. Do you recommend prophylactically in those patients for? maintenance of homeostasis to put them on CRRT and CVVH for, uh, for for more precise fluid management control, or do you think that's something that should be waited on?
1: No. Again, I definitely want CRRT. You do? And I, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. There has been data that CRRT reduces your inflammatory response, wash some of the toxins away. And mm-hmm. big data on that, and I'll tell you, CRT, you can control the fluid balance, and I think that, and I think it works very well. You mm-hmm. not today. If you think about the start, it. I mm-hmm. want again. My technique in life is: if you think about something, do it. Don't don't wait and ponder too much. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Very good. Mm-hmm. I th- I like that philosophy too. So now I'm going to throw you just a complete curveball. And Sweet. Mm-hmm. And 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 so let's think about the patient in the operating room having a uh, a double-valve, three-vessel coronary. And the patient has a big tube in their right atrium going into the inferior vena cava, and that's draining by either gravity or vacuum assist into a reservoir that then gets pumped through a lung and then pumped back into the patient's aorta, and the cross clamp's gonna be applied and we're gonna be a little bit hypothermic. And that patient has a reservoir volume of four liters because the patient is, uh, was in heart failure and is massively fluid overloaded. And so we decide we're gonna ultrafiltrate off all of that excess volume to reduce the uh, need to give that patient allogeneic blood transfusions. There's a controversy within the perfusion community at this point that says that if you hemoconcentrate while you're on cardiopulmonary bypass, you will stop the kidneys from working, that you will you will uh, put the patient into renal failure. Can you please tell us what your thoughts are on that thought?
1: Okay, and again, you just, you just want to be controversial all the way today. So <laughs> I can tell you, I believe in, you know, in uh, cons- concentrating the patients, uh, especially our heart failure patients, maximally food overloading. So I believe in hemoconcentration big time. And I but believe f- the only thing that relates to a renal a renal dysfunction is pressure, perfusion pressure. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you, right so you don't so the answer the simple answer is if I hemoconcentrate the volume in my venous reservoir on cardiopulmonary bypass with a patient that has essentially a venous pressure now of zero, but an arterial pressure of systemic pressure of seventy, that hemoconcentrating the reservoir volume has no effect whatsoever on renal function. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Okay, thank you.
1: And I'll tell you, I believe in that, like, you know, uh, people concentrating, why? Takes away the inflammatory response again. There's a lot of mediators that gets washed away. Those mediators are hurting you bad.
0: I agree. Mm
5: -hmm. Mike. Uh, One last uh, question. Back to the ventilatory uh, uh, settings and everything. We mentioned uh, the tidal volumes, and we mentioned the PEEP. Uh, How concerned are you, or where does Uh, the measurement of the uh, ventilation airway pressure come into hand. Uh, We see some of our patients with airway pressures in the low 20s and we've seen some up in the very high 30s to 40. If you have, uh, I guess what I'm trying to ask is if you have an airway pressure that high, do you have to sacrifice PEEP or what is the relationship between the two and how would you deal with that situation?
1: If I have an airway pressure that high, I'm very concerned actually. And the first step for me, which might sound very rudimentary, sedation and paralysis appropriately. Mm-hmm. Right. Fish is not sedated and paralyzed appropriately, we're gonna have artificial, you know, airway pressure that are that high. So you need to remix the sedate and paralyze, which is well suctioned there's no plugging. There's no, I, I know it sounds very rudimentary, but I promise you, things go crazy. There's no kink in the tube. There's no kink that you cannot see. Sometimes the tube is going in the mouth, making a little turn, before put makes the bigger turn, you have that king, and you see artificial. You want to make sure that all is real, that all that's real, and you're getting those high peak airway pressures, and you're having a problem ventilation, there's a, there's a big problem, and you're gonna to have to consider, actually, believe it or not, ECMO.
5: No, if Does the patient it is on ECMO. Is on ECMO, yeah, if they, they are on ECMO. They're We're on ECMO. Do you sacrifice the the PEEP? Do you lower the PEEP because the
1: uh not to lower the PEEP. I would definitely I would do whatever I need to do to go to thirty. Mm-hmm. I don't want any pressures above thirty. Mm-hmm. Above thirty has been really good. It should so, be very bad. So
0: would you which would you do first? Lower the 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 volume to listen? would you go as low as two milliliters per uh, kilogram on your on your tidal volume? and keep the peep high, or would you start after you get to three milliliters per kilogram at your lowest point, turn the peep down from 15 to 10? Which would you do to get that pressure below 30?
1: I would keep the time of volumes, I would want to less than three. I don't think less than three can inflate that. Uh, that'll be live appropriately
0: Okay, so three. So you would go down at that point. So three milliliters per kilogram is really the lowest you're comfortable going on your vent tid- on your tidal volume, and uh, and start with a PEEP of 15 and lower as necessary to get the pressure under 30.
1: Yes, I, I I that's what I would do till I get to the situation when I get to.
0: Very good. Mm -hmm. and any other questions from Mm -hmm. the audio from the uh, panel
3: no that was great
0: dr samir we can't thank you enough sir it's been a pleasure as always and i'm looking forward to seeing you back up here in magnolia for uh for more raw hamburgers and uh crawfish (laughs) when the season comes up
1: i'm gonna be missing my rover burger today (laughs) unfortunately i have two meetings back to back this afternoon very nice to meet all of you, and I look to meet
0: you yeah. guys in person. Thank you so much. Thank you, Thank Thank you, you Dr. Samir. Samir. Be safe, sir. Thank, Thank you.
1: you. Good
0: day. Thank you. OK, so we're um, we're going to forego. Uh, break. You want to take five minutes? Yeah. Yeah. OK, so we are going to take a five-minute break. Uh, so we can play our, we can play five minutes worth of advertisements. That's all we get is five minutes. So the ones who have paid their bills, Put them on first, <laughs> and whatever time's left over can get somebody else that still owes us. Okay, five minutes, very quick. And welcome back, everyone, to part two of day three of uh, PerfWeb number 26, when vv ECMO is still not enough. Mr. John Ingram.
3: Hey, thank you, Joe. And... Um... Appreciate you having me here again, and um, this talk comes from a, a case report that we are just recently completing this ECMO run, and I think a couple months ago when you had visited me down in Orlando, um, you might have seen this patient when I gave you a tour of our unit, I'm not yes, sure. Yes, absolutely. And we were talking about three or four weeks ago, and I said, Joe, this has been a pretty interesting ECMO case. Um, what, what would you feel about incorporating it into a talk? And you said, absolutely, it's a pretty unusual case. So. I don't have any disclosures on this uh, on this particular talk. Uh, so, we had a patient present to us, 34-year-old African-American female with three small children, class three morbid obesity, which is a BMI over 40.
0: Okay, class three plus, that was a big girl. Okay. <laughs> that was a big girl.
3: Um, the patient had a very interesting ongoing, this is her ongoing present history that she, Presented with, and she she continues to have. She has systemic lupus erythematosus, is, which is an autoimmune disease whereby the immune system mistakenly attacks healthy tissue. It can affect the skin, joints, kidneys, brain, and other organs. She also had something called polymyositis, which is an inflammatory myopathy of the muscles, which involves inflammation of the muscles and the associated tissues, including the blood vessels that supply the, mus- the muscles. Now. Poly- polymyositis, it's a muscle disease and the inflammation is, it is in response to the cell damage that occurs. She also had dermatomyositis, which is strongly associated with polymyositis. It's an inflammatory disease marked by muscle weakness, additional mu- muscle weakness on top of the polymyositis, with a skin rash. She then had also a syndrome called anti-synthetase syndrome. It's a rare inflammatory muscle disease related to the dermatomyositis and the polymyositis. But its hallmark is the presence of serum autoantibodies directed against the cellular enzymes involved in protein synthesis. She also was chronically immunosuppressed. Immunosuppression is a reduced efficacy of the immune system. The cause may be unknown or may occur as an adverse reaction to treatment of other conditions. Now, when she presented on the day of admission with all these conditions I just listed, she had a productive cough. She, uh, CT of the chest re- revealed bibasal airspace consolidations, bilateral widespread infiltrates. She had pneumonia. This was her tipping her over the edge to having her from coming from home into the ER on top of her other conditions. So her heart rate was 131, her blood pressure was relatively normal, but her respiratory rate was 20, and she still had a decent arterial sat of 94%. She had an elevated white blood cell count of 17,000, but her temperature was normal. So went ahead and started prophylactic antibiotics were started. So on post-admission day one, her respiratory rate went up to 30, up from admission day, which was 20. She then required four liters per minute of nasal cannula oxygen to keep her sat at 96%. On post-admission day two, she had suspected mucomycosis, which is a pneumonial fungal infection. It's caused by the order mucoralis rhizopus species, is the most common organism. This disease is often characterized by fungal branches growing in and around blood vessels. Most commonly involves severe infection of the facial sinuses. It comes through your nose, it comes through your eyes, it's very, very unsightly, and it also may extend into the brain. Most mucromycoresis infections are life-threatening, especially in immunocompromised patients, which she was. So they gave her uh, Amphotericin uh, B4, it's an antifungal medication used for serious fungal infections. Well, she had an immediate adverse reaction to the medication, resulted in chills, rigor, required immediate intubation, heart rate was 80, blood pressure went up a little bit, but her respiratory rate went all the way to 55, Arterial sats dropped to 88 on 4 liters of nasal cannula. Deteriorated requiring 30 liters of nasal cannula and that's then when, when she was intubated. All this happened on the second day post admission. So then on post admission day 3 they tried proning her, sedating her, paralyzing and arterial sats seemed to be settling down at 95%. Post admission day 3 wow. her x-ray looked completely whited out. This is the morning chest X-ray. We see bilateral opacification, and this is when we decided to initiate ECMO. So post-admission day four is PEDO on the right is post-ECMO day zero. That's the initiation day. She had uh, in the morning hypoxia despite max- maximum ventilator settings and paralytics. So the decision was made to initiate VV ECMO. We cannulated the left subclavian vein, which I was talking with Dr. Samir about, with an Avalon cannula of 27 French. So this is a, a diagram pulled off the uh, Avalon website, so it shows the right IJ being cannulated, but in our case we are actually cannulating through the left subclavian. But if you look on the right side, you see the idea of the Avalon cannula for anybody who's not particularly familiar with it. It goes down through the uh, SVC into the a- past the atrium and down into the IVC. And the way the flow is supposed to work is that it actually has holes up in the superior vena cava, it has holes down in the inferior vena cava, it takes the blood, desaturated blood out of the patient, comes back in through a side hole to another central lumen. And if you position it correctly, the oxygenated blood aims directly towards the tricuspid valve in the hopes that it's going to go straight into the right atrium and make its way around the circuit. So I want you to remember this little uh, diagram here of how the Avalon cannula works, if you're not familiar with it. You're taking blood out of the SVC and out of the IBC back to the uh, ECMO unit and return it oxygenated aimed towards the right atrium. You can verify this, and you need to verify this, through a TEE. Okay, and you see the cannula placed, and you can kind of see on the left screen where the red arrow is, where the opening is for the exit of the returning arterialized blood. And then you see once we're flowing that it is truly shooting directly towards the tricuspid valve there on the right. So you know that your position for the ECMO cannula is correct, for the Avalon can- cannula. So post ECMO day one is, day zero is our initiation day. So we started off with a blood flow of four and a half liters, but we could not go above that. Because one of the problems we faced right from the onset for some unknown reason was we had to run very high venous negative venous pressures through this uh, Avalon cannula. And we've used the 27 French Avalon many times. We, we have problems, but nothing to this magnitude. We were even running as high as almost 200 at some point. So we initiated the, uh, the ECMO and uh, her vent settings were at 100%, and still, look, we only had a PO2 of 57, but we had arterial side of 91%, and we had our lactate at, uh, at 1.0. That was at 12 in the afternoon. By, by nine o'clock that night, her PO2s are decreasing, her CO2s are rising, Even though we increased the sweep, her arterial saturation dropped to 76%, her lactates are on the way up. All of these are bad signals. Mm -hmm. So her arterial sats are continuing to struggle right off from day one. So post ECMO day one, vent settings down to 60%. We're thinking now maybe we finally got over a little bit of a hump. We're starting to feel a little better. PO2 is back up to 67. Uh, Arterial sats are 94%, but our lactates are still rising, now up to 3.0. So our blood flow limitation, like I said earlier, was struggled throughout this uh, Avalon ECMO run because we had such high uh, P-venous negative pressures. We also had very high interior, uh, interior and arterial pressures also. So it almost seemed like we had a kink in the cannula. But never on x-ray could we determine that there was a kink in the cannula. Now I'm going to jump forward to post ECMO day 7. and it's on, it's on ECMO day seven that we decided to add additional venous cannulas because look at our blood gas at 11 a.m. that day. You see our PO2 is down to 54. We're not able to flow the four and a half liters we were able to flow. We had to turn the flow down because of the high pressures that we were facing down to 3.4. Our lactates are at 3.0 on 100% vent. So we decided that we would add two more femoral venous cannulas. okay? So we, we did that, and now after that happens, we have vv ECMO. We were able to turn the event setting down to 50%. This is four, five hours later at, at 1,400, three hours later. And you see that our PO2 has jumped up to 84. Our blood flow is now up to seven, because now we have nice, uh, less resistance through the cannulas, we're able to flow through all four cannulas. Our sweep has been dropped, but our sats are picked up to 98%, and our lactates have dropped down to 2.3. So we think now, once again, that we've finally got a little bit of a handle on this. And this is what the the, the diagram looks like here. If you can envision, you have a venous drain cannula coming out of the Avalon, and then it comes down, and it's widened to another femoral venous, cannula that also is widened to the negative pole. you go through the uh, oxygenator the arterialized blood is split up to a femoral uh, venous cannula it ends up into the right atrium as well as the Avalon return cannula that also spills blood back into the right atrium Okay, so this is the configuration VV-VV ECMO with an Avalon and FemFems So looking just at the FemFem aspect of it We had uh, in the right femoral a 25 French drain cannula, and in the left femoral a 22 French return cannula. This is what the 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 femoral side looks like. And remember that your uh, left um, your left femoral return cannula is fed all the way up into the atrium. Again, you're trying to get that arterialized blood to go into the right side of the heart. Right. From the Avalon aspect basically have the Avalon hooked up. It's doing what it normally would do. You're going to withdraw venous blood from the superior vena cava and the inferior vena cava, return it arterialized, aiming it towards the tricuspid valve. So this is, I'm going to walk you through our progression here. So we start off post ECMO day 0 through 7. We just had a VV Avalon ECMO. Then on post ECMO day 7 to 24, we rode with VV-VV which was an Avalon with two FemFem cannulas in place, as I just explained. So now on post-op ECMO day seven, you can see uh, (laughs) we have the femoral venous cannulas, uh, very hard to see because it's so widened out, they go all the way up into the superior vena cava. On post ECMO day eight, we were able to turn the vent settings back down to 50%. We feel like we're making progress, PO2 is 63. Uh, lactates are dropping to 1.9 we have a decent arterial saturation of 91% that was 12 o'clock in the afternoon during the next uh, approximately uh, what is that 15 days or so ECMO day post ECMO day 9 to 23 during this time frame the the patient experienced multiple issues we had GI bleeds we had bronchial bleed status post multiple lung biopsies we had a problem that I have never seen in a VV ECMO before. This patient had severe unexplained coughing and gagging on the, uh, we couldn't even tell what it was at some point. It was almost nonstop, it went on hours and hours on, uh, without, without stopping. She was coughing and gagging on the, on, the tr- on the trach tube despite all kinds of paralysis, repositioning of the tube. Echos that were done to find out if somehow the, um, the uh, intubation tube or the inflation cuff was right on her gag reflex, we could not figure out what the problem is. In fact, we never did figure out what the problem was. But the problem with it was that every time she coughed and, and gagged on the tube, um, we were not able to wean off the sedation because we had to keep her so sedated to keep her from doing this severe coughing. Um, and then also when she would cough, she would bear down and it would decrease our ability to flow because of the, because of the, the, the Valsalva that she was doing. The venous return would slow down, and we couldn't flow. So we would, when we had blood flows below 7, her arterial sats would go down. So we are unable to keep the patient awake. We couldn't interact with her. We couldn't rehab her in any way due to this immediate and prolonged coughing episodes, which caused nearly continuous suction events, along with desaturations going down in the 60s every time she would do that. We tried using Esmolol to decrease uh, some of her cardiac output, but we were stuck. We were stuck in a range of PO2s, 40 to 100, with vent settings of 40 to 100%. We could never turn the vent down below 40, and we could never get our PO2s very high for very long. So a decision was made to implement a second cardio help in parallel. What does that mean? Well, on post ECMO day 24, look at our blood gases. Before we made any changes, we had to have the vent setting at 100%. Our PO2 was still only 52. Arterial sats were borderline 89%. Our lactates were hanging in there at 1.6. Three o'clock in the afternoon, the decision was made to implement a second cardio help in parallel. After we did that, we were able to turn the vent setting down to 50%. Our CO2s came down, our PO2s went up, 94 arterial sats. Went up to 98%. Our lactates were still trickling up. So this is what looked like before. With one single cardio help on VV-VV ECMO with an Avalon circuit and two, uh, before before the Avalon, only with the Avalon circuit, right, we had a blood flow of seven and a sweep of 13. When we added two cardio helps, one on the VV side and one on the cardio help side, We now had a blood flow of 10 with a sweep of 9. The Avalon and the Fem-Fem circuit. So I'm going to tell you what this... So look at our progress now. We started off with a VV Avalon circuit, post-ecmo day 1 through 7. Then we combined additional cannulas, femoral venous cannulas, post-ecmo day 7 to 24. Then we split the two and had two separate cardio helps, one running the Avalon, one running the Fem-Fem, Uh, circuit on post ECMO days 24 to 65, that's where we are now. So let's look at what happened, we have two separate VV ECMOs going, one that's running the Avalon uh, cannula and one that's running the femoral, fem fem venous cannulas, okay. And this is a picture of the actual bedside where you see two cardio helps side by side, you see the tubes there going underneath the blanket. On post ECMO day, I'm gonna do about 10 day blocks here. Post ECMO day 25, we had vent settings down to 35%, PO2 of 83, arterial Sats 98%, and now we're seeing a drop in our lactate. We have uh, been able to start turning our flow down on the FemFem circuit, so we have a decrease of flow to eight, and 10 days later, our vent setting is still fairly okay at 40%. Um, decent blood gases, our lactate's still dropping a bit. Our blood flow on the Avalon uh, circuit, we're actually able to turn down, and we're actually able, starting to be able to turn down the blood flow on the FEM circuit as well. So we're down to a 6.8 total blood flow, with a sweep of 10 between the two of them. Post ECMO day 45, 10 days later, we're seeing an increase in our PO2s, Arterial sats are good. Our lactate is at one. We're still able to turn the Avalon flow down even further with a sweep of only one on the Avalon circuit. And so now we have a total blood flow of eight, a sweep of nine. But this is the day that the lungs finally turn the corner for the better. You're going to see what's going to happen here. When we jump to post ECMO day 55, we actually have the sweep almost entirely off on the Avalon down to one quarter. Uh, PO2 65 arterial sats 93 our lactates are still good at 1.4 We've also been able to turn the flow down on the femoral uh, uh, ECMO circuit so our total blood flow is down to 7.2 When we go to post ECMO day 65 we have the sweep off on the Avalon our fem fem flow is down to four for a total blood flow of 4.0 Uh, You don't count the flow through the Avalon with the sweep-off, right, because it's not doing anything. So you have a total actually effective support flow of 4.0, down from originally I think it was as high as 10. So we have the sweep-off on the Avalon circuit. So on post-ECMO day 65, the decision was made to remove the Avalon circuit, and um, you can see on the left subclavian there's no longer anything there. The lungs are a lot more blacked out now. They were completely white in the original pictures that I showed you. So where are we at, at the moment? We're now down to a solo FemFem VV ECMO circuit, just like I showed you before originally. And this is the progress. We started off with an Avalon circuit only. We then added two femoral venous cannulas. We then split the two to have two separate circuits. And as she got better, we eventually were able to remove the Avalon circuit altogether and just have on FemFem Venus from post ECMO day, 65, all the way to 78. On post ECMO Day 78, this is the day we were actually able to wean her from ECMO entirely. Now I want to stop right here and speak for a minute. I put an exclamation point there not to brag about or wave a celebratory flag that we did such a great job on this patient. This is not the reason why we chose to do this presentation. It's not a marketing or a promotional of how good of a job we did. And I just want to point that out. But why did I put an exclamation point on this slide. Starting from ECMO day, from ECMO week three through ECMO week seven, she was on for 10 weeks because she was on for 78 days, 10 weeks, 11 weeks and a day. ECMO week three through eight, five straight weeks, the entire immediate family was brought into conference with top physicians, CCM docs, surgeons, administrative chaplains, and they were told that they need to consider withdrawing this patient. Every single time the family said, no way, no how, we're not withdrawing this patient. Next week, another 30 minute to an hour long meeting. This went on for five consecutive weeks and they told the family, this patient, we've never had a patient that required this much oxygenation support. The lungs are not contributing anything. She has lupus, she has fungal pneumonia, she's immunosuppressed, she will never get off ECMO, she will never recover, she'll never be any better off than you see her right now. Um, and they continued to refuse to admit a, a, a permit withdrawal. They just said to us, they were praying for a miracle, and that's what they did. They met around her bed every morning at eight o'clock, held hands, prayed over the patient, they decorated her room in Bible verses, family pictures, and other biblical paraphernalia, and lo and behold, they were wrong, they were right, and we were wrong, because the patient did recover, The patient was weaned, this was about now nine days ago, is no longer in the ECMO unit, is excavated down on a step-down unit. Um, The other reason I put an exclamation point here. Yes, the patient came off this uh, most severe form of VV ECMO. It is expected that the patient hopefully, if and will, go home one day. She will go home um, with no arms, no hands, and no feet. She had, starting in week three, her fingers and hands turned severely black along with her toes and feet. She had to have the hands and feet wrapped in gauze for the last five weeks of the ECMO run. I couldn't visualize them. They had them wrapped in gauze to keep the skin from fluffing off and for oozing. Uh, So she will be a a quad uh, amputee, probably uh, some significant distance above the wrist and some significant uh, distance above the ankles, exactly where I don't know. Uh, So yes, we were successful in this VV, but at what price? So I wanna bring some slides for possible discussion. So when you have two separate ECMO circuits running, and I have there, this is our trends that happened every 10 days, I plotted. The FemFem circuit there in the red, the Avalon circuit there, which stopped at day 65. Um, Joe and the listening audience, I would ask you a question. This is your flood flow rate um, chart of how we tried to make adjustments and tried to oxygenate her differently at different times. If the uh, so let's say it's seven o'clock in the morning, and your physician calls you and says, you know, I have a low PO2. My right radial PO2 is a little bit lower than it was yesterday. Um, Can you come in and and which ECMO circuit are you going to increase the flow on and why? We'll get back to that in a minute. Here's the sweep flow rates. And as you can tell, we tried doing different things with the sweep flow rates. Let's say the physician calls you the next morning and says, you know, Joe, my CO2 levels are high. Can you come in and increase the sweep? Which circuit do you increase the sweep on and why? Here's our lactate chart. Every day there was drawn a lactate, and I tried to summarize that. And you can see on the left there at the lower, it says we started with the Avalon cannula. We then went along, and I don't know if I could read my own writing. And then we went to adding the uh, in the yellow, we added the femcannulas, fem and then um, we split the circuit, and then eventually we came off there at the end. And this is what happened with our lactates. Lactates is everything when it comes to ECMO, anybody who's listening, not terribly familiar, don't do a lot of ECMOs at your hospital, if you wanna know if you're doing something right when the patient's on ECMO, your lactate should be going down. If your lactates are going up, you're probably doing something wrong. So I show that here to see that as we made different changes to the circuit, we saw improvements in our lactate, then we would lose control of it and the lactates would go back up and we'd make another change and you'd see them come back down. These spikes were when she had bouts of of, of sepsis. So now here's uh, part of why I did this talk and I wanted to do this talk. was not about whether we were successful or not. It was about how elaborate and interesting it was to me from a perfusion standpoint to have two separate ECMO circuits running and basically running at the same point next to each other in the atrium. So first of all, I wanna show you one thing that was unique. The femoral, I think it was the left femoral, or the right femoral uh, return venous uh, cannula was fed all the way up, not only past the right atrium, actually ended up into the right IJ. You see it way up there where I have the arrow. Why this wasn't pulled back, I don't know. We talked about this a lot. I don't know why it wasn't pulled back because not only does it have multiple side holes, it also has an end hole, which was shooting straight up the IJ, and she did have a swollen neck and face for a large portion of the time. Um, I think they were so afraid of all the things that we'd been through trying to manage and oxygenate this patient, that once we sort of were able to get the job done, nobody wanted to mess with it. I think that's what happened. So that's one interesting thing, but there's a ECMO specialist where we work named Melissa Dale, who's a self, self-proclaimed artist she does all these cannula drawings for us and she did this for me in about three minutes believe it or not but there was no way to see it on an x-ray so ask her to draw this up when you look into the right atrium you see the avalon cannula coming down uh coming down there past uh behind the aortic arch that's coming to the left subclavian, comes down past into the right atrium and into the ivc and it's doing what an avalon cannula does when you have a femoral uh return cannula coming all the way up This cannula on x-ray was smashed up against the Avalon cannula and it was also smashed up against the IVC atrial wall and SVC. So when you're asked yourself, we're going to turn the flow up on one of these. um, Look what's happening. The the femoral uh, return uh, arterialized blood is coming up and it's emitting holes right where the Avalon cannula is taking blood out. Mm -hmm. so how much mixing do we have going on here and if you increase the flow of one or the other are you just increasing the mixing from cannula to cannula from ECMO to ECMO are you actually hurting the patient or helping the patient I don't think we knew I think we just had to guess and experiment and see if we improved Um, why were the pressures in the Avalon cannula so difficult we're not sure we ever figured that out Um, how were our flows to be determined Um, The other thing I didn't write up here is, we talk about the Sears response and the inflammatory response with a single cardio, uh, cardio bypass circuit or a single ECMO circuit. Here we had double that going on. So imagine the Sears response that we were dealing with on top of all the other issues that she had. For whatever reason, we had very difficult time flowing through the Avalon circuit. And I'm just giving an example here with the flows and pressures. On the left, there is the Avalon. At only a 2.2-liter flow, we had to use an RPM of 3260, pr- internal pressure of 188 and a delta and a delta P-venous pressure of minus 124, at two liters of flow. Whereas on the FEM side, we were able to flow six liters at 36,50 rpms, and only a minus uh, venous pressure of uh, 93. So we really struggled to, to, to flow through this. Uh, cannula for some reason. So I hope that that could stimulate some of your thoughts and we can have some discussion about from a perfusion standpoint. hmm
0: very good, excellent. Good oh, thank you. Thanks for that, uh, you know, I'm uh, very uh, uh, joyous, you know, I mean, you, you certainly brightened my day <laughs> in talking about how that patient ended up. That's tragic and sad and, um, you know, I can't speak for her you know and uh, her family i i i don't know she's she's alive mm-hmm. and so uh you know that may be uh
4: that may be enough
0: that may be i think yeah, you maybe. know we we i think it's a hard it's a hard thing to do and i i wouldn't want to be i you know i i'm glad i guess i don't have to make those decisions um because uh i i think it's hard to not project how you feel Onto somebody else. Uh, but with that said, why not? Do you want to do them at first to answer that question?
3: Whatever question you want to talk about, let's Well, start you, you
0: said you were asking. You were going to ask a question about the which would you go up on? Yeah.
3: Well, if if, or if you, you, was it rhetoric? now that I've shown the drawing and you understand how the cannulas are perhaps mixing with one another, perhaps hurting mm-hmm. one another, maybe they're they're mixing ECMO to ECMO, and someone says our PO2 is low, we need you to turn up the flow on one of the ECMOs. What are your thoughts about that? If, mm-hmm. the, if, the, if the CO2 is rising and you need to turn a sweep up on one of them, how mm-hmm. do we know what, uh, there's such a dynamic going on between blood flow mixing and, mm-hmm. and benefiting or not benefiting the patient, mm-hmm. between the way those two cannulas were so jammed up against each other mm-hmm. basically, because yeah. she was a small lady on the inside. Mm-hmm. You know, She was heavy, but she was not a big lady. So we had two pretty decent sized cannulas side by mm-hmm. side right there. Mm-hmm both trying to do something relatively similar, but they were doing something different at the same time. So sometimes one was just going right into the other mm-hmm. to a certain extent. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was interesting to to understand. I don't think we were ever really understand what we were actually doing in the atrium exactly. Mm-hmm. But fortunately enough of it was making it th- through to the right side. Mm-hmm. So for her size, first of all, I think a 27 is too small.
0: Mm-hmm. But that's what she needed because you're saying she's a... Little woman in a big woman's body, mm-hmm. and I understand she was short and person, sh- the big person's body. Everyone say it. Um, why didn't anyone consider? I mean, so why did you not just do a VA? You have well, the one VV uh, and then do a VA with
3: it. She actually was hypercardiac dynamic. You know that was one of the problems with just having the Avalon was that she had a cardiac output that was very high. Remember, we were giving the esmolol. I talked about how mm-hmm. we gave the esmolol. We were trying to sedate her. We were trying to reduce her cardiac output because mm-hmm. she did not have a cardiac issue. Mm-hmm. She really didn't. We, I suppose, we could have tried uh, oxygenating her arterial side. Um, I mean, given all of the yeah. all
0: of the what's, all of what she had had done already. You know, I, I guess a graft into the right subclavian and go femoral venous because you'll drain the heart more now, you know, put it into the atrium so that you have more drainage, lower the preload even more, and then some of it going back into the Avalon, the venous, but then some of it going uh, into the right subclavian to mm-hmm. get you the the oxygen. I mean, I don't know, I'm thinking, I'm just grabbing
3: And a lot of times we do do that. It's a good thought. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm have sp- to, I don't have
0: know why they didn't do it with her.
3: Yeah. Mike. Uh
5: quite a complicated situation as you think about it. I, I thought it interesting that your inflow cannula was that far up mm-hmm, into mm-hmm. the patient. I was wondering, I was thinking about this. It sounds like you almost might be able to uh, separate the body right in half and have one of your yeah, working the lower. Wor- the lower and one working the upper. Did you mm-hmm. ever th- think about that and uh, and uh, take those cannulas uh, and thought about taking those cannulas out and? With just smaller, especially the fem-fem
3: part of it. Well, I think if you pulled the femoral artery return, returning to the patient, mm-hmm. cannula back, and you had you had the the the, the drain femoral venous cannula was short. Mm-hmm. It was below the uh, what is it? Just below the, the right. renal artery. Right. That was there, and it was taking lower lower half of the body blood, and returning it as close to the right atrium as they could get it. But it was a long cannula with multiple holes, and trying to get it over to the right atrium. So that part was done right. I don't know why it ended up so high up. And I w- for some reason, the, the, the physicians whose, whose patient this was just did not want to pull it back. I'm not quite sure. I would have uh, thought the why- return,
0: you would want all of the ports in the right atrium where the Avalon is and all of your drains in the cavas. So I would have thought that one that you were saying was all the way up into the soup that we saw way up into the mm-hmm. into the right IJ the tip of it really should have been in the right atrium.
3: Well, you couldn't angle it. It was a straight cannula, but and it has multiple side holes. It for quite have quite a distance. To be angled,
0: it just you know you think about the Avalon. The Avalon's pulling from the SVC and the IVC mm-hmm. and returning in the RA.
3: Yeah, because it has a curve to meant to do that though. As it exits through that, it it has a little bit of a hook shape True. to yeah. it. Yeah. I understand. So that. the end hole of a normal cannula is going to be straight. I don't know if you could have gotten it aimed towards the right atrium. Um, yeah, um I found that perplexing. I don't have a good answer for you as to why it wasn't pulled back.
0: Yeah, that and, I mean, to me, I hear what you're saying, but I would have I guess again, you know, I don't I don't want to belabor the point. In my thinking, regardless of whether or not it, it worked. So really, I mean, I don't even know what mm-hmm. my argument is. It worked, but my thinking is regardless of angle and regardless of going into the 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 tric- down the tricuspid like the Avalon does all of that stuff or the Crescent we mm-hmm. use the Crescent by mm-hmm. the way you ought to try that oh yeah I we think do. it would go yeah I like that the cannula mm-hmm. but um, but it seems putting the blood back into the superior vena cava which is what was happening mm-hmm. is just getting picked back up again mm-hmm. and so what you may be doing is making your Avalon oxygenation more effective mm-hmm. because it doesn't have as desaturated a mm-hmm. blood. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I still feel that, you know, I, you know, and I think you can only do so much. If no one wants to pull it back, you can't pull it back yourself. Right. But I would have thought that would have been the, the, yeah, the right thing might to do. Have
3: helped. Yeah. yeah, I think that's... And whether it would help not, who re, knows. Regardless that the patient got better, doesn't mean we, could, we couldn't have done something better. Um,
0: well, you were hand, I mean, it was a mess. I mean, this was not a, this yeah. was a tough case and uh, I, liked your, the way you, I liked the way you articulated um, the reason for your, for your exclamation point and, and, and why that wasn't there. Yeah. Um, so uh, I thought that was very I, appropriate.
3: I, I don't know if you define success where it's successful in the face that there's not a single physician at our hospital that thought this patient was going anywhere by ECMO week three, by ECMO day 21. Mm -hmm. The family had been spoke to at least twice. They were spoke to on five lengthy 30 minute to one hour closed door meetings, even administration got involved at one point. There is no reason to put your daughter, your sister through this. Uh, She is never going to and they would not take that for an answer and lo and behold, the patient came off not only one ECMO but both ECMOs, right. and is right now extubated and sitting in a step-down unit. Yeah. Uh, but by week three and four, we already knew there was going to be no hands and feet if she ever went home. And yeah. I, I don't know how. I didn't even get to see him for the last uh, six weeks of it because they were wrapped. I didn't. And she was on. Never was not on. Uh, isolation or mm-hmm. precautions because of the yeah. fungal pneumonia so I didn't go in there all that often mm-hmm. but I could tell from the doorway I couldn't see the feet or hands mm-hmm. and they were wrapped in gauze and I asked the nurses and we're just trying to keep them from you know sloughing off the, mm-hmm. the skin mm-hmm. so and I saw before they did that there was blackness well into the wrist area mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. it was yeah. way you know and this yeah. was week 3 we went to week 11 That sounds. so hilarious. I don't know uh, how this is gonna end mm-hmm. up I mean mm-hmm. you have a question
4: Actually, I do. Do you, do you ever encounter, I know you do a lot of ECMO. Uh, uh, do you ever encounter situations where they don't want to track lactate?
3: No, we track lactate every day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have
4: encountered
3: I that. I don't know why you wouldn't. I don't know why you wouldn't. Uh, we, it's uh, me too. probably the most important thing. I know, me thing. too.
0: I totally agree with you 100%. I ask that question all the time. I had a question for you. Was this patient on... CRRT?
3: Yeah, almost entirely.
0: So, the lactate, and this is a very important point, I'm glad you asked that question. Great, great question, because it helped me. Is, if you're on CRRT, and your lactates are that high, they are much higher, because you're clearing it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. The thing about CRRT, which is beauty, the beauty of it, is that it removes all of these evil humors, Mm -hmm. it removes the bad juju, it helps with all of this stuff, but it masks. Mm-hmm. Your your when your lactate was three, if you had not been on CRRT, it mm-hmm. would have been eleven and twelve, and you'd have been in just dire straits. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a fact. So there was something else going on, almost an ischemic. Well, look at that. There was yeah. There was tissue. Dying for the lactates to be that high.
5: Right.
3: Remember her her, uh, unusual, her unusual muscle disease. Yes. The polymyositis. If you remember when I showed the early slide, this is a muscle disease that infects not only the muscle but the surrounding tissue, including the blood vessels of the muscle. Yeah. So, you know. Maybe there was a reason why they didn't want to cannulate an artery. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, talk I can about things, that. But, but mm-hmm. this was so complicated. Lupus alone is complicated. Mm-hmm. She had about four other things on top of that. Oh, she was a, uh, a,
0: a textbook.
3: You know, um, a textbook
0: of diseases you don't want. And,
3: and Dr. Samir brought up, by the way, using high-rate oscillators. Os- oscillator. Yes, we mm-hmm. tried that on her for about. 18 hours and we had to take it off.
0: Yeah,
3: Uh, It didn't tolerate it and it didn't recruit any in any part of the lungs at all. Mm -hmm. And he said something about it not working very well, maybe in pediatrics it works. We tried it, um, uh, somebody suggested it, they were willing to try it, and and we had to take it off in a short short period of time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It didn't seem to recruit any.
5: How many circuit changes did you make?
3: We actually did not make any circuit changes for the cardio Interesting. But I will tell you this, Mm -hmm. that- That's um,
5: amazing that's amazing
3: about the interesting thing about this case is that there was one pulmonologist who said among almost everybody saying there is no reason to keep this lady on ecmo she said I have seen people recover from this and I spoke with her and she said there is no permanent fibrosis going on in the lungs if there's no permanent fibrosis in the lungs then you are You have an acute situation, right? Until you have fibrosis, which is going to be permanent and chronic, you have something else going on. And she never did have develop any type of fibrosis. Mm. So the fact that um, the family stuck with it actually showed us that if you don't have, if you have all these acute things going on, given enough time, she may actually overcome them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's basically what but happened.
0: But again, then you know you get into the issue of what does what? meaningful existence mean right to mm-hmm. the patient mm-hmm. and at what price victory at
5: right. what, at what yes. price
3: mm-hmm. right. Right. I know um, I think um, yeah uh, I, I think over all the ECMOs I've seen I think we have people that fall into three categories one that are basically a corpse on ECMO and mm-hmm. they're they're dead those that are going to thrive and survive and those that are caught in between life and death. Mm-hmm. Right.
0: They're well we caught had one, in one, between know, life and remember last last Thanksgiving, not this yeah, it's past Thanksgiving. We had a patient on ECMO and I somebody asked said something, and I said, Look, the the patient is 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 probably going to get pronounced when the turkey's coming out of the oven. The patient's not gonna make it. It was it was there's no way this patient was gonna make it went home and is currently working in their garden. And I was like, ooh.
3: And I think that's kinda what I was trying bad, to say.
0: Bad predictive. bad predictive. Uh, was that a
3: VV or? It was a VV. I, I think that's the lesson that I kind of took home was that, okay, you have all of these things. And the lungs couldn't be. Another point I want to bring up is the family was told this to some extent. You have to have this much horsepower, this much oxygenation by two cardio helps And the flow is as high as 13 liters between the two of them at one point. Mm -hmm. To oxygenate, and that oxygenated blood is going through her lungs. Now remember something, if the lungs cannot contribute anything, they can be a deoxygenator, right? Because you have stale uh, alveoli air in the alveoli, and as your oxygenated blood comes by, a high PO2 is gonna diffuse to a lower PO2. That's is the opposite, and you can have a sink. You can have a, a deoxygenation situation. Think so? Whether or not that was happening with her, I don't know. I don't know. But we've had situations like that.
0: I would say that's a good point. That's a good thought. But I, I would think that if you cannot diffuse oxygen from the alveoli to the blood, it's probably not going to diffuse the other direction.
3: You probably I right. I wouldn't right,
0: think yeah. so. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: But of course, you know, you never know. One never knows. You, you know, and I don't I don't know if I didn't assess it to see if that was happening. I have yeah. seen cases where the ox- with the lung was deoxygenating <laughs> because we sampled it. You can sample the right atrium and you can sample like let's say you have a left ventricular vent. You can sample that. It's less oxygenated mm-hmm. when it comes through the lungs. You can see it mm-hmm. on occasion, you know. So there there is times when the lung You don't think
0: that's the Beesians and all the yeah, other I you know, direct direct you know, direct cavitary return from the bronchial circulation, all that kind of stuff that we see. Maybe the
3: that's time. a topic for another day to really see if if a, if a lung can work against us if it's in such a severe case. That's Maybe that's not a, a good bad topic. Idea. It's a
0: good. That is a good because topic, I really don't know. I've been I'm you know
3: anecdotally told this by different pulmonologists and different people. But when you assess it the way you said, if you can't exchange air to blood, are you able to simply diffuse the other way around? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I yeah, know. I don't
0: know. I guess I mean, yeah. you know, it's a good
3: question. And we did have and the lady
0: a lung transplant expert yeah. to talk about that. That would probably be the right person for that. Uh, that deals with those kinds of dilemma all of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. a lung transplant surgeon would probably have that, or a or a, a pulmonologist that deals in lung transplant patients. Mm-hmm. They probably because mm-hmm. they're probably some kind of circulation you know how we develop collaterals in the Mm -hmm. coronaries do we develop those in the lungs when you have a problem like that I don't I don't know the answer to that Mm, I don't know you know I mean that could be I just Mm -hmm. don't know so I think again good topic for another day Mm -hmm. all right we need to get you to the airport young man try to see okay I have kept us on schedule um in fact I've kept us ahead of schedule (laughs) so if the board is watching okay I'm i've had many other programs that have gone way over the time and we never get any extra credit for them so we're going to probably end today a little early and ask forgiveness versus permission and uh, make up for it in our next program when we will build in a runover. okay (laughs) so so with and, and think about it both stephanie and i i don't know about you or you or you but stephanie and i finished our board um our, our board recertification yesterday and got it in on time and paid the fees You youtube yesterday yes, yes so yesterday. there's three of us uh, what's like yesterday couple of weeks two. ago oh you oh, did yours your a couple of weeks ago yeah, we had, we, we're on cycle three exactly so uh anyway with that said listen everybody we want to thank you so much uh we need to get john to the airport he wants to go back home to orlando and see his lovely family and uh, we will see you again in our next program coming up, which is going to be uh, on th- Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, August 29th, 30th, and 31st. We're talking about a novel approach of measuring clot burden of an oxygenator. That's gonna be, uh, um, uh, oh, what's, what's his first name? I forgot his first name, DeLong. What's his first name? I can't remember, um, it doesn't matter. Um, and uh, But he's, he has uh, really, it's, I saw the Texas artist do the same one. Remember that talk, the guy mm-hmm. that was talking yeah. about measuring end tidal CO2s yeah. and mm-hmm. that other thing from Transonic yes. that measures recirculation for VV ECMO mm-hmm. and also clot burden of the oxygenator, real interesting stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, an algorithm for selecting ECMO cannulation, that's gonna be me. Um, and then also advanced hemodynamic monitoring Katie Kim is gonna be giving that lecture from uh, formerly from St. Uh, Luke's, the Woodlands, uh, and now she's here with us. And you're gonna be giving a talk on non-invasive cardiac output oh. devices, Tammy yeah. Sparacino. You
2: know. All right. <laughs> and
0: so I'm excited about that. And then Taver and Saver updates from Dr. Balan and cannulation strategies for ECMO support of the TAVR patient, also Dr. Balan. So we're looking forward to seeing you all at the end of the month, August 29th, 30th, and 31st. Take care.